Well, ladies and gentlemen, it is my pleasure to welcome you to the Tuesday, 19th of September, 2023 episode of the Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast coming to you from my home here in Greenwich, Connecticut. <laughs> I'm back from Hawaii, still back from Hawaii, my friends, I can assure you of that. This weekly Greenwich, Connecticut history show is hosted by me. My name is Jeffrey Bingham Mead, a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut, a community long known as the gateway to New England. Greenwich, Connecticut was founded on July 18, 1640, and since its humble beginnings, the town has emerged to be one of America's most notable and attractive communities. It's a special place that we call home. Whether your roots go back nearly 400 years as ours do, whether you're here to stay, just passing through, or you're a new resident, well, we welcome you with open arms. You're a part of our history now, so I send you my congratulations. And I'm really glad that you could join us for today's show. The Greenwich Town for All Seasons Show podcast is made possible by Alexander Affiliates, Eastern Neurologic Services, Kevin M.J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, and listeners like you everywhere. You know what? We've got a great show for you. So sit back, relax, and let's get started. Coming up on today's show. On Greenwich in the Gilded Age, our visit will take us to Greyhampton in Clappard Ridge. It was constructed in 1917 for Henry W. Croft and designed by Johnson and Abbott of Pittsburgh. The landscape architect was John Greenleaf. Finished in 1917, it was built of brick with a slate and tile roof. It had eight bedrooms, 11 fireplaces, and six chimneys. That journey, by the way, to the Great Estates is made possible by the Junior League of Greenwich's wonderful book called The Great Estates of Greenwich, 1880-1930. In Greenwich Life As It Is and Was, Erwin Edwards offers his readers his thoughts in 1921 on the cost of living at the time and what it was ten years before. In 1906, the Greenwich Police Department was founded, and we're pleased to take our listeners back in time to Crimes and Misdemeanors, a segment of the show chronicling crime and law enforcement. In other historical happenings, you'll hear about a night school established in Glenville in 1911. You'll hear about prize fighting that reared its head in Greenwich in 1893. You'll also hear a poem published uh, called Summer's Farewell. Constitution Week was marked in 1928, as well as news of a new experimental medium called television. With the electoral season underway in 1911, there were predictions of a tame election season in that year. The First Baptist Church of Greenwich held a Japanese bazaar in September 1908. In 1928, Mrs. Betty Randolph, formerly of the Ziegfeld Follies of New York, failed to show up for a wedding ceremony in Greenwich with her fiancé, the Reverend Benjamin J. Chitasek of Philadelphia. Now, why did she stand up the good reverend? Well, you'll hear the details. Hmm. Greenwich has been the residence of important business executives for generations. One of them, Walter C. Teagle of Byram Shore, who was the president of the Jersey Standard Oil, commented in 1911 about the importation of oil from Mexico. My friends, there's lots to see, to do, and to learn about the history of the town of Greenwich. We think that you've come to the right place to learn about the history of Greenwich, Connecticut, one of America's most interesting and extraordinary communities. We're going to have all this and more as our history continues to unfold. Stay tuned. We'll be right back after these important messages.
a landscape architecture firm with an optimistic view of the future, Alexander Affiliates is a professional landscape architectural firm specializing in designing and planning visually appealing, functional, and environmentally responsible outdoor spaces for residential and commercial developments. From backyard perennial garden preparation to regional coastal planning, we have you covered. In addition, we serve a global clientele that has brought in a lot of business for us through word-of-mouth referrals. Some of Alexander Affiliate's clients include construction companies, land and property developers, government offices, engineering companies, geographers, and soil samplers. Its mission is simple. Instead of focusing on saving the planet, let's concentrate on thriving together. In business since 1980, you can learn more about Alexander Affiliates by going online to alexanderaffiliates.com. To learn more and to contact Alexander Affiliates, you can call 203-869-8632. Again, that's 203-869-8632. Its mailing address is P.O. Box 711, Greenwich, Connecticut, 06836. My friends, don't gamble with your health. Eastern Neurological Services offers comprehensive neurologic diagnoses and therapeutic services. Its principal, Dr. Xiaoke Gao, MD, is a top New York neurologist who practices in dynamic treatment of neurological diseases, neurorehabilitation, and physical therapy. With convenient locations in New York City and a multilingual staff, Eastern Neurologic Services offers a wide array of treatments for neurological disorders. You'd be glad to know that Eastern Neurological Services provides general neurological consultations, on-site diagnostic testing, and physical and neurocognitive therapy. Visit easternneurologic.com, that's easternneurologic.com, or call 212-889-6540 or 212-227-6500. It's a fact of life that our health is important. Contact Eastern Neurologic today. You'll be glad you did. Well, thank you, Kevin M.J. O'Connor, Vice President of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, knowledgeable in the complexities of the financial markets with a passion for servicing clients and their financial needs. My friends, learn more at jeffreymatthews.com or call Kevin M.J. O'Connor at his Greenwich office, telephone 203-485-7595. Again, that's Kevin M.J. O'Connor. His Greenwich office at 203-485-7595. We're pleased this month to promote Greenwich resident Mr. Milan Mosquera for the best in reliable curbside door-to-door airport transportation services. I recommend Milan without hesitation. Go where you need to go with the peace of mind of knowing that you'll travel in good hands and please, by all means, contact him anytime at 1-203-621-8383. That's 1-203-621-8383.
Well, it's time to go back in Greenwich, Connecticut's history to the Gilded Age. That was when wealthy Americans constructed splendid mansions, outbuildings, and beautiful landscapes, a time that the late town historian William E. Finch Jr. referred to as the flowering of Greenwich, an age when the word Greenwich first became synonymous with the term millionaire. Now, thanks to the Junior League of Greenwich, the Great Estates Greenwich, Connecticut 1880-1930 book was published. It is superb illustrated, revealing a wealth of detailed information. It is a book I strongly recommend. Now, on today's show, we'll visit Greyhampton in Clapper Ridge. Its principal owner was Henry W. Croft. The mansion was designed by the firm of Johnson & Abbott of Pittsburgh, and it was constructed in the year 1917. And the story of this great estate begins as follows. Henry William Croft, who lived from 1865 to 1947, had no particular ties to Greenwich when he decided to build a home here. Born in Allegheny City, Pennsylvania, he went to local public schools and then took a commercial course at Iron City College in Pittsburgh. One of nine children whose father died at a young age, he worked first as a bookkeeper when he was 16, then was employed by the Firebrick Company, which became the Harbison Walker Refractories Company of Pittsburgh after several mergers. Under his skillful management, the enterprise developed rapidly. Not only was he knowledgeable concerning the details of the brick manufacturing business, but he was also an expert in finance and administration. He remained actively associated with that firm from 1887 until 1938, when he retired as chairman of the board. Thus, he was an extremely wealthy and successful man when he began to think about where he would like to retire. His wife urged a location some distance from the business in which he had worked so hard. One of his daughters recently related that, quote, they chose Greenwich out of the blue, unquote. In late 1915, the Greenwich News and Graphic reported that, quote, one of the largest real estate deals ever made in Greenwich has just been completed, and so quietly was it done that very few people are yet aware of its magnitude. A block of land embracing nearly 300 acres, valued at from $1,000 to $2,000 an acre, comprises the sale, unquote. By February 1916, Henry Croft had obtained the deeds of five farms at the Clappard Ridge section of town, originally known as Clappard Tree Ridge. They had belonged for some time to the families of George M. Meade, Henry de Kraft, Hannah E. Peck, Albert M. Reynolds, and Julia A. Reynolds. One of the north, one on the north of the resulting estate was bounded by Clappard Ridge Road, on the south by Parsonage Road, on the west by Lake Avenue and Parsonage Road, and on the east by Northbrook Farm. The land was for the most part rolling, picturesque country, much of it cleared farmland, some of it in orchards or forests. The fact that the Merritt Parkway did not later cross Greenwich right through the area, where it logically should have, is due to the efforts of the Crofts and other landowners who were able to block the plan. Hmm. 
The press had been reporting fears that the high prices of building materials would have a depressing effect on construction, but by mid-1916, a reporter for Greenwich News and Graphic wrote that, quote, apparently the tidal wave of prosperity that has swept across the country took everything with it, even any scruples that prospective builders may have had regarding the additional expenditures required because they had advanced cost of labor and material, unquote. Henry Croft was no exception as he planned his substantial mansion. Finished in 1917, it was built of brick with a slate and tile roof. It had eight bedrooms, 11 fireplaces, and six chimneys. The architectural firm Johnson & Abbott of Pittsburgh designed the house. William H. Nye of New York was the contractor, and John Greenleaf was the landscape architect. The main block of the house has a broad chimney at either end and dormer windows in the second story. The front door opens into a wide entrance hall with a staircase both to the right and to the left leading upstairs. Directly ahead, through the four large arches, is a spacious room which the Crofts called the living hall. A marble floor designed in squares covers the entire area, and on it they arranged an oriental rug at the entrance and large square and oval rugs of a solid color in the living hall. Steps lead down to that room, which they furnish with groups of plush velvet sofas, armchairs, and a piano. Handsome fireplaces are the focal point at both ends of the hall. Other important rooms in the sections of the house flanking the main block are the dining and the living rooms, both quite grand. The striking feature of the dining room is the beautiful tapestries, which the cross found in England, brought back, and had framed with additional woodwork on the walls. An extremely wide fireplace is centered in one wall and brought up from the cellar through the trapdoor which the ever-practical Henry Croft had designed for the front hall. The dining room is large enough easily to accommodate a breakfast table by the bay window. Here the family sat when they were not using the formal dining room. The living room is magnificent with its oak paneling and intricately detailed plaster ceiling molded in bold relief. The Crofts furnished their house with English antiques and many paintings. One of their daughters remembers it as an extremely livable and comfortable home, dearly loved by her parents. Henry Croft's office, a rather dark, half-paneled room in his day, furnished with leather furniture and an enormous moose head on one wall, is at the left end of the house. He devised a machine there, which amplified music so that it could be heard throughout the house, long before modern stereophonic equipment was available. A door from the office leads directly out to one of the magnificent gardens. Augusta Graham Croft, who lived from 1870 to 1949, for whom the estate was named, was, in her daughter's words, a great gardener. She worked closely with John Greenleaf, with a British superintendent from Benheim Palace for a while, and with the local gardeners she employed to create the spectacular gardens of Greyhampton. She studied catalogues, brought plants back from England, grew her own seedlings, and when she felt the first garden was insufficient for her flowers, she planned and planted a second. A stone 
slate-roofed summer house complete with wrought iron seats and railings graced one of them. From it could be viewed fountains, pools, boxwood-lined paths, and lovely beds of flowers. Delphiniums of different shades, Canterbury bells, foxgloves, irises, the scene ending with steps leading up to the pedestal where a graceful nude Diana restrained her leaping dog. Flowers surrounded a square lily pool. Everywhere, the beautifully tended walks, shrubs, flowers, and stonework transformed the pastures, orchards, and marshy ground originally surrounding the house. The crofts also planted elm trees, some of which survived the blight. Unfortunately, most of the boxwood were killed during one particularly hard winter. The Crofts spent much of their time at the south side of the house, described by one family member as the living side. The terrace was there with its tubs of hydrangeas, the screened porch to keep the mosquitoes away, and the sweeping views of the sound. In fact, the family could watch the 4th of July fireworks in Rye. The land in that direction embraced the fields and orchards of the old farms. A stable and a garage were built on the property. Cows and chickens were kept for a while. The twin daughters enjoyed riding horseback, and local fox hunters often galloped through their property, riding almost up to the edges of the gardens. Golf was Henry Croft's favorite sport. He pursued it at a number of clubs in various parts of the country and used his own lawn as a driving range. The Crofts wintered in Pittsburgh and summered in Greenwich for years, but they chose to spend the last years of their lives on their beautiful Connecticut estate. They had come a long way from the small Pennsylvania towns where they were born. Harry Croft, as he was called, died at Greyhampton at the age of 81. His wife died two years later while in Pittsburgh visiting two of their daughters. Most of the land has since been sold, but the names of such roads as Beechcroft, Pinecroft, and Meadowcroft are reminders of the family's ownership. The acreage with, uh, with the house today has been reduced from almost 278 to not quite five, the property of the original estate having been subdivided into residential lots. Well, that's a nice story, and I hope that you enjoyed that about a really, truly great estate. Now, The Great Estates Greenwich, Connecticut, 1880-1930 book by the Junior League of Greenwich is available for borrowing through the Greenwich Library system. You can visit GreenwichLibrary.org, or if you wish to acquire a copy, I would urge you to visit the Greenwich Historical Society's museum store in Coscob. You can go online to GreenwichHistory.org, where you can shop online, or you could call the store at 203-869-6899. best-kept secret in historic Greenwich, Connecticut is a marvelous destination with an even more extraordinary mission. Voted Best Coffee Shop in Greenwich by the readers of Greenwich Magazine and honored with the Community Impact Leader Award by the Connecticut Restaurant Association in 2022, Coffee for Good invites you to be a part of a magical story of a restored historic treasure, a destination that inclusively brings people together. Thanks to a unique nonprofit partnership between Abelis and the Second Congregational Church. You'll be instantly drawn to the warmth and the historical ambiance when you enter the 1850 
58 Italianate-styled Solomon Mead House at 48 Maple Avenue on the campus of the Second Congregational Church. Serving coffee, teas, an assortment of delectable goodies and more, Coffee for Good employs and trains people with special needs. Through a self-sustaining inclusive platform, trainees acquire the skills and confidence they need to thrive in the community. Open daily, Monday through Saturday, 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. except Sundays, Coffee for Good offers you free Wi-Fi, free parking, indoor and outdoor seating year-round in a relaxed setting with a vibe all its own. A popular destination for informal business meetings, gatherings, and a fantastic study spot, too. Take it from me, my friends. The word about Coffee for Good has gotten around. After all, its success is driven by a never-ending commitment to excellence and inclusion. Coffee for Good is located at 48 Maple Avenue on the campus of the Second Congregational Church, all part of the Putnam Hill National Historic District on the National Register of Historic Places. Open daily, 8 a.m. through 6 p.m., except Sundays. You can learn more by going to coffeeforgood.org. Speaking of Coffee for Good... Your next hire is just a coffee away. Well, how about that? Now, did you know that Coffee for Good is an on-the-job training platform with Ableist for people with special needs? Well, it's true. It graduates or its graduates emerge with the technical and professional skills to be employed in jobs in the hospitality, service, and retail sectors. Coffee for Good is located at 48 Maple Avenue in the historic Solomon Mead House, circa 1858, on the campus of the Second Congregational Church in Greenwich. I encourage you to come to Coffee for Good and to see them in action. Contact employer at coffeeforgood.org, and you can learn more about the learning program for those with special needs by going online to coffeeforgood.org forward slash employers. Well, it's time for Greenwich Life as it is and was. Today's column was penned by Erwin Edwards, and it appeared in the, if I can find it, the December 23rd, 1921 edition of the Greenwich News and Graphic. The topic uh, that uh, Edwards decided to uh, to cover uh, is one that we are a bit familiar with um, in uh, today's day and age, and that would be Um, Today's prices today and 10 years ago. And of course, I allude, of course, to uh, the impact that inflation has had on um, uh, things like groceries um, here in 2023. I'm sure that they were um, having the same issues back then. This would be in the post-World War I era. And Erwin Edwards has the following to say. It is rather interesting in a way to go back for a decade or so and compare the cost of living at that time with the price of commodities of today. And it is rather puzzling when one comes to try to analyze the situation, why and how such difference in the price of things arises. All one has to do to compare the cost of the necessities of life today with yesterday is to get a paper of 10 years ago, or up to 1914, and one published lately. The difference in the cost of things is surprising, more than the average person would think without having read such comparison. Of course, everybody knows that things in general cost on the average just about twice as much as they did previous to the war, from needles to crowbars, shoes to hats, vegetables, cereals, fruits, 
meats and fish, candies and jams, coal and wood, and so on through the list. There is one commodity, however, that holds its own with the price of 10 years ago. Sugar is as low today in price as it ever was, selling at five cents per pound. And there is where the puzzle comes in. Why should sugar come back to the old price and practically nothing else? Coal has more than doubled its price over the last or the past 10 years when it was selling from six to seven dollars a ton. Now it costs from 14 to 15 dollars a ton. Don't the same conditions that affect sugar affect the price of coal, as for instance, freight labor, the supply ago, and yet as raw materials is down to pre-war prices, and in some cases below? Hmm. The average man asks, what is the cause of this peculiar, unusual condition? He is told that this, uh, that this the cult that this change in prices is due to the war. Yes, he replies, but the war was over three years ago. Hmm. Freight and labor, overhead charges, the tightness of money are also given as reasons, but other causes mentioned as well. But what bewilders the average man more than anything else, when all these reasons have been given to him, is where does the law of supply and demand come in, which seems to have no bearing on the conditions whatsoever, is working having become obsolete. In almost every instance, whether of meat, eggs, coal, or whatever commodity it is, the supply exceeds the demand, excepting in the case of houses and rents. Here, the demand is greater than the supply, and hence, it is easily understood why houses near and in New York have doubled in price, and rents, in many cases, trebled. We asked a Wall Street man the other day why things seem to be so unbalanced. Quote, I can't figure it out, unquote, he said. Quote, there is no precedent to go by. The law of supply or demand is violated, and the man who pretends to know why conditions are as they are is only a guesser. Freight charges, labor, the fall in stocks, the reduction of, let's see, of passing of dividends, the upkeep of stores, lights, have uh, all and all have doubled, and other things as well, all contribute to keep prices up. It is hard to explain why it is so because of the abundance of everything. It is easy to explain why England, France, Italy, and Germany are in the straits that confront them, but conditions are entirely opposite from what they are here. We have abundance. They are in want. It will work out in time, and it will be rather interesting to watch the process or processes whereby we came back to normal conditions. But they will never be the same in some respects, that they are that they were rather before the war can't be. Unquote. Wickham Steed, the editor of the London Times, is doing the conference in Washington. The Times recognized that it wanted its editor on the ground, so Mr. Steed came. He has been writing a series of articles for the London Times, which have been syndicated and printed in this country. He has been fair, unprejudiced, and neutral in his comments of the doings of the international meetings at Washington. He seems to have made a study of conditions in this country. From an Englishman's standpoint, what he says is interesting to be an American, or to an American, I should say. 
The attitude of the West and Middle West is not merely due to incomprehension or cussedness. The farming community, which is the backbone of the United States, is passing through a serious crisis. Losses during the past 12 months have been heavy. Several banks that finance agrarian operations are entirely frozen. In all this, he doesn't venture to say why this has happened. He speaks of, an, uh, of the American loans to European countries and says they did not come from the bankers or Wall Street, but consisted largely of money loaned by the people, which is true. He thinks and so says that it will be understood that no suggestion for the cancellation of European indebtedness can be brought up without raising a serious financial problem for the United States Treasury, which is true. He might have added, if he had felt so inclined, that the interest on that ten looks like ten billion debt had something to do with the high price of commodities here and the disturbances of the law of supply and demand. When that law comes back to its natural workings and not before, will will things return to normalcy in the economic world? And that, my friends, was published in the December 23rd, 1921 edition of the Greenwich News and Graphic. You're listening to the Greenwich Town for All Season Show podcast, hosted by Jeffrey Bingham Mead. That's me, a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut, the gateway to New England. The Greenwich Town for All Season Show podcast is made possible by Alexander Affiliates, Eastern Neurologic Services, Mr. Kevin M.J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, and listeners like you everywhere. Thank you. In 1906, the Greenwich Police Department was founded, and we're pleased to take our listeners back in time because it's time for Crimes and Misdemeanors. This is the segment of the show where we chronicle crime and law enforcement in the town of Greenwich. We have some very, very colorful crimes that have been committed over the uh, generations, indeed over the uh, centuries, and we're going to bring them to you. I have a number of rather interesting things I'd like to share with you today. What? should I do first? It's always hard to choose. You know, being in my position, uh, the decision-making I have to go through, uh, well, don't feel sorry for me. It's just part of how it's all done. Let's start with Hair Snatcher. This is from the <laughs> September 22nd, 1916 edition of the Greenwich News and Graphic. Yes, we have news of a Hair Snatcher who steals tresses while girls sleep. My goodness. Thief entered Miss Knowlton's apartment by window and cut off her hair. All right. Yes, this has actually happened back in the day in 1916. And the story goes as follows. A wealth of beautiful hair was cut from the head of pretty Miss Isabel Knowlton while she slept at her home on Byram Hill, Tuesday night, and it is believed that the thief entered her sleeping apartment, which is on the third floor, through a window. Miss Knowlton lives with Mr. and Mrs. William J. Martin, and when the loss of her hair was discovered Wednesday morning, 
Mrs. Martin notified the police of both Greenwich and Port Chester. Well, that makes sense. An investigation was started at once, but as yet no trace of the culprit has been found by the authorities. The thief is the second that has been committed within a week of this section, as Valerie Milko of Port Chester was robbed of her beautiful tresses while in a crowd at the Fireman's Carnival at that town one night last week. No trace of the thief has been found. I find that strange. Anyway, on with the story. It is believed that the hair snatcher sells his uh, his booty to wig manufacturers or hairdressers in New York, and that it is understood that fancy prices are paid for natural hair of good quality. Both Melko and Knowlton girls uh, had wonderful hair, and the loss has grieved them deeply. Well, I'll bet. All right. On to the next story. This is Chicken Thieves Busy Again. Again, same date it was published, September 22nd, 1916. Organization Probable to Protect Poultry Raisers. Every season, a number of poultry raisers throughout Greenwich are troubled more or less with chicken thieves, and this fall is no exception to the rule. Reports have reached the news and graphic that large numbers of chickens are being stolen every week from poultry farms in this town, and despite the efforts of the owners to capture the thieves, they have so far been able to escape detection. In order to put a stop to this thieving, the News and Graphic invites all parties who have been afflicted in this way to write us fully in regard to the matter as efforts are to be made to organize a society for the protection of farmers and others who are engaged in poultry raising. An organization of this kind, properly conducted, we believe, would be the means of capturing some of those who are engaged in this lawful business, or unlawful business, I should say, and we trust that those who have been afflicted will join this paper in an effort to protect those engaged in this industry. Parties who send us communications need not have their names published unless they so desire. Well, that's rather unfortunate. I have one, maybe two more stories. Let me see. Oh, yes, there's this one. Crazy man put in cell. Well, this dates from September 4th, 1908. And the story goes as follows. All right, let me just see. It's a little bit faded. Let me make it a little bit better for me to read. All right, here it is. By clever scheme, acting chief of police Talbot gets him to lock up. Well, that's good. But the story goes as follows. Acting Chief of Police Talbot had quite a little trouble with a crazy man Sunday, but finally succeeded in landing him in a cell at the police station. The insane man was Dr. Clinton Alden Dodge of Philadelphia, a young man of fine family who, with his mother, came here to look over a local sanitarium. They had first sought board at the home of George J. Hunt of Locust Street, and afterward went to the home of Mrs. McKay on the same street. On Sunday, young, the young doctor became noisy and refused to do what was requested of him. The officer was notified and went ever to look after him. At sight of the officer, Dr. Dodge became quite violent and made much trouble about leaving the house, declaring that things he needed, such as a vase of wild flowers, be left to him. The officer got him to the lockup by a clever pretext and locked him in a cell. 
Dr. Dodge has been mentally changed for some time and has been in a sanitarium in Nyack, that would be in New York, and later at Poughkeepsie, also in New York. Late May, he was examined in the psyche. Psycho, oh, psychopathic ward at Bellevue Hospital after he had set fire to his bed in his home in New York. He has been sent to a local sanitarium. Mrs. Dodge, the young man's mother, said her son has been in poor health for several years, brought on by overwork. He suffered from insomnia at first and later from strange delusions. He had a doll in his possession, which he refused to become separated from. He has specialized in spinal diseases. He and his mother left town Monday night. And that, my friends, is the the latest in crimes and misdemeanors here in Greenwich, Connecticut. Well, we are, to say the least, as you may be aware, entering into election season. Some people call it the silly season. Some people have other names for it, but anyway, <laughs> this is a uh, an editorial that appeared um, in uh, 1911 in September of uh, of that year. Um, it's uh, it's not very long or anything, but um, it's uh, titled "A Tame Election," and um, I think that after I share this with you, you'll understand uh, why. What a sharp contrast it'll probably be to what we're experiencing now. Uh, needless to say, let's go on. <laughs> anyway, the coming election, which will be held Monday, October 2nd, will be a rather tame one, and it is an even guess at present as to whether the Republican or the Democratic ticket will be in the lead when it comes to a count of votes. The endorsement by the Republicans of the Democratic town clerk and the Democratic Charity Commissioner, two excellent officials, and the endorsement by the Democrats of the Republican First Selectman, also a man well-fitted for the office, leaves these men out of the contest. Hmm. The nominations at the caucuses of the members of the Board of Estimate and Taxation, Town School Committee, Auditor and Registrar of Voters is equivalent to an election, therefore they will not be in the contest on Election Day. It lies between Charles F. Adams and Newton S. Johnson, who are down on different tickets for the position of second selectman, to see which will secure the greater number of votes, thereby determining the position of second and third selectman. The election will simply determine which one of the six uh, assessors nominated will be left, which one of the four members of the Board of Relief nominated will be dropped, which one of the four sewer commissioners nominated will not be elected, which one of the eight constables nominated will be allowed to lead a quiet life, and who will be the road commissioner and the tax collector. There will probably be the greatest contest over the two latter offices, as each party has put up a candidate who will fight for the office." As to the tree warden, it is a foregone conclusion that Charles T. Hoftailing will be re-elected. The town never before had one who did his duty fully. Ah, but there's more in the same column, and I have to admit that this will surprise, I think, many of you. Uh, We have uh, another editorial, and it's titled, you'll love this, Socialist and Prohibition Candidates. 
Now, when you think of Greenwich, you probably don't think of socialists. Um, <laughs> but back in the early 20th century, there was actually a very active socialist party, um, uh, not just here, but elsewhere. The socialists have named the following candidates for town offices. Assessors, John Weng, I think that's how it's spelled, uh, uh, W-N-E-G, I don't know how you would pronounce that, William L. Sniffen, Ignaz Kuchnel, Selectman, J. Henry Fry, Robert W. Moeller, Registrar of Voters, Nels T. Sorensen, Charity Commissioner, Moras F. M. Allgauer. The prohibitionists have named the following. Board of Relief, Charles E. Studwell, Selectman, Nehemiah H. Husted, David Farrington, Town Clerk, Robert Wellstood, Town Treasurer, Amos W. Avery, Grand Jurors, Thomas B. Allen, Constables, Thomas Howard, Charles A. Sweze, that's spelled S-W-E-Z-E-Y, Willis E. Olmsted, Wilbur A. Haviland, Registrar of Voters, P. Otto Hughes, Superintendent of Highways, Lion F. Peck, Tree Warden, and Charles Hoptailing. News was published on September 11, 1908 in the Greenwich News about a Japanese bazaar that was held um, at First Baptist Church. As the story states, the Japanese bazaar held by the members of the First Baptist Church on the evening of Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday proved more successful even than was anticipated. There was a large attendance every evening, and the financial receipts were very satisfactory. All of the ladies who took part were dressed in Japanese costume, I would assume kimonos, and there were impersonations of various notable Japanese characters. There were sales of Japanese articles, and a Japanese supper was served. Well, it's uh, fair to say that with um, us in the latter part of September, that the season of summer uh, is coming to an end once again in year 2023. Back in 1921, I happened to run into a poem that was written by Frank L. Lent and published in the September 16, 1921 edition of the Greenwich News and Graphic. Um, I don't know very much about the Lent family. Um, I know that there are members of that family that are um, buried in Union Cemetery, uh, over off of uh, Millbank Avenue in uh, Greenwich, just down the hill from the Second Congregational Church. I have not found Frank L. Lent's gravesite there, but he probably is somewhere else, I would assume, but I would like to read you this summer farewell poem that was published uh, on the 16th of September in year 1921. The summer now is passing by, with steps so light and gay, and soon the lips of man will sigh, for tender shoots of May, the primrose path that once so sweet made life a thing of joy, now bids a hasty swift retreat, ere death's cruel hands destroy. The autumn splendor round us lies, a glory reigns above, tis but a message from the skies, a tender word of love. Each olden golden hour takes flight before the frost king's sway. The minutes team with memories bright to cheer us on our way. And now each cherished memory dear, ere birds in flight take wing, helps change the winter cold and drear to life's eternal spring. Binds 
heart that beat to purer love, though leaves like rain may fall, uplifts them to his throne above and crowns them last of all. Life is short, I all too short, to fret and frown and scold. Make yours a life chunk full of sport. Grow young instead of old. Throughout the year of blustery snows, of rain and merry shine, make life a song, a flower that blows, in good old summertime. Well, the year 2023 annual meeting, uh, Greenwich Landmarks and David Ogilvie Preservation Award of the Greenwich Historical Society is scheduled to be held on September 20, 2023. The David Ogilvie Preservation Award is going to be presented this year to Debbie and Russ Reynolds, and deservedly so. Debbie and Russ were selected this year by the Landmarks and Awards Committee for their exemplary dedication, support, and many years of service to the Greenwich Historical Society and to the town of Greenwich. They have played instrumental roles in the formation of the Stanwich Historic District and Historic Properties of Greenwich, through which they endeavored to provide permanent protection to vulnerable properties from our early history. Again, this is going to be held on Wednesday, September 20th, 2023 at the Belhaven Club, 100 Harbor Drive in Greenwich, Connecticut. The reception begins at 5.45 p.m. The annual meeting and program will be held from 6.30 p.m. to 8 p.m. And uh, the presenting sponsor is Charles Hilton Architects. Now, event tickets. Um, This is a a ticketed uh, event. Um, And... um, you can go to GreenwichHistory.org and look under the events um, heading on the menu and scroll down to annual meeting and you will be able to register and uh, to be there for this event. The Greenwich Landmarks and David Ogilvie Preservation Award Committee co-chairs are Robert Getz, and Ogilvie and Heather Sargent. There's other information on the GreenwichHistoricalSociety.org site of um, Uh, heritage sponsors, presenting corporate sponsors, preservation benefactors, and so on and uh, so forth. We hope that you can uh, attend. And by the way, before I forget, it's here on the uh, the website that I am referring to, the David Ogilvie Preservation Award um, in introduction. The David F. Ogilvie Preservation Award is the Greenwich Historical Society's highest individual honor awarded when merited for special achievement in recognition of major accomplishments or lifetime work dedicated to the advancements of preservation in Greenwich and beyond. Past awardees include David F. Ogilvie, posthumously awarded in 2020, and Deborah and Chuck Royce, who were awarded in 2022. In a class by itself, the Greenwich Historical Society's museum store and artist's cafe is the discerning shopper's destination for unique gifts and accessories. Located in the Toby's Tavern building at 47 Strickland Road in Coscob, the museum store reflects the richness of Greenwich, Connecticut's renowned history. Browse the latest arrivals in the store and online. Enjoy online shopping and pickup, ample free parking, 
member discounts, and complimentary gift prepping. Open Monday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m., and weekends, noon to 4 p.m. Located at 47 Strickland Road in Coscob, enjoy complimentary coffee and tea in the warm ambiance of the Artist's Cafe. Learn more at GreenwichHistory.org. You know, in the early 20th century, Greenwich, Connecticut was a very, very popular destination uh, for people who wanted to get married. Um, there was a short waiting time, if you will, and so for those who wanted to get married quickly uh, or maybe under other circumstances, uh, Greenwich uh, was a favorite destination, especially due to its proximity uh, to uh, New York City as well as to um, uh, you know, New York State. And so this is a story that originates from uh, September 18th, 1928. Uh, this wasn't, uh, well, I'll just read it to you. <laughs> Waiting at the church is the headline, Betty Randolph failed to keep marriage date with minister. Oh my, well, the story goes as follows. With all arrangements made for the wedding ceremony to be performed by Justice of the Peace, William S.M. Fisk, that would be here in Greenwich. Last Friday afternoon, Mrs. Betty Randolph, actress formerly with the Ziegfeld Follies, New York, failed to appear here at 2 p.m. as arranged and her fiancé, the Reverend Benjamin J. Chudasek of 1707 West Diamond Street, Philadelphia, after waiting for an hour and a half, telephoned to Mrs. Randolph's home at number 24 East 67th Street, New York, only to learn from the maid in Mrs. Randolph's employ that his bride-to-be had gone to Atlantic City. Hmm. The minister returned to New York City, stopping at the Pennsylvania Hotel. Mrs. Randolph, in conversation with Reverend Chudasek, over the telephone two days ago, said she would motor out to Greenwich Thursday, spend the night with friends, and meet him at the office of the Justice of the Peace at 2 p.m. Reverend Chudasek arrived in Greenwich Friday afternoon on the 106 train, having valises and other luggage, including a box of choice flowers for his bride. Well, that was nice. Application for the marriage license was made by the couple at the town clerk's office on June 13, 1928, and the five days under the Connecticut five-day law, long having expired, the clergyman visited the town clerk's office upon his arrival here, and the license was delivered to him by Miss Nora Murphy, deputy registrar, which now he has in his possession. A few days after making application for the marriage license here, it became known that the wedding had been postponed. Arrangements made for the ceremony a second time on September 13, with Justice of the Peace fixed again, were deferred, and then for the third time, the date was set by Mrs. Randolph herself, according to Reverend Chittasek for last Friday afternoon, but Betty had departed without giving any reason to her fiancé, who appeared much wrought up over the situation Friday. This is Randolph's fourth matrimonial venture. Hmm. Her previous husbands were William H. Spillaker of New York, Thomas S. Hoke of New York, and Jerry Brady of Yonkers, New York. Mr. Brady, from whom she secured a divorce last January, was the son of a Yonkers policeman. 
she met the minister at a party given at 275 Park Avenue, New York, in celebration of her divorce from Mr. Brady, and on June 6th, she was engaged to Reverend Chudasek. He was 14 years a priest in Wisconsin and then became a Protestant minister. Mrs. Randolph, some six months ago, had a diamond and emerald bracelet stolen, valued at $10,000, which disappeared after Jack Osterman, vaudeville headliner, is said to have given her a quote-unquote sock in the jaw in Vincent Lopez's nightclub last January. Oh, my. She was formerly with the Zigfield Follies and other well-known New York shows. She is 29 and Reverend Chudasek, 44. He was formerly pastor of St. Cyril Methodist Czechoslovak Church in Johnston, New York, and is a prominent worker in the Czechoslovak Church of America. On Friday evening, when interviewed by reporters, Betty said the maid's statement was that was she had gone to Atlantic City was untrue. Quote, I just changed my mind, she said. I decided once uh, and for all that I do not want to marry him. It may be a privilege with some women to change their minds, but with me, it is a habit I can't help it. Unquote. The former actress intimated that she had been greatly annoyed of late because of the numerous letters and telegrams received from the minister. This uh, was published in Tuesday, September 18, 1928, in the Greenwich News and Graphic, and it is titled First Television Play. The General Electric Company of Schenectady, New York, produced the first playlet by television last week. I have to admit this came as quite frankly, a big surprise. I was not aware that um, television, well, in a more primitive form that we're accustomed to, uh, was developed so early in the, uh, the 20th century. Anyway, on with the story. The, a screen had been placed four miles away, and the reports are most gratifying for the initial venture. Features and motions were a bit cloudy, but the experiment was regarded as a success worthy of development. Theatrical managers are opposing television, for while many will still prefer to attend the theater in gay attire, countless others with uh, as great a taste for entertainment but unable to pay the high prices will uh, be pleased the opportunity to uh, look and listen by television. Uh, the radio is unquestionably the greatest miracle of the day, not one of the least of its benefits, being the blessings it brings to those who are shut away from all contact with the outside world. Comfort has been given through the preaching of the sermon, pleasure to music lovers by the best artists to be secured, entertainment through the medium of the play, instruction broadcast by speakers and lecturers on subjects of general and special interest. Distance has vanished and people can sit comfortably at home and listen in not only all over our country, but across the water. Surely a wonderful administration and, and only in its infancy. What will not be the revelations of the future? Well, <laughs> we, we all know that now in the 
first quarter of the um, of the 21st uh, century. What else do I have here? Oh yes, Constitution Week. This week, known as Constitution Week, and serious efforts are being put forth to impress its significance on the minds and in the hearts of the people. It is the 141st anniversary of the signing of the Constitution of the United States, that great document which has stood the test of the years regardless of whatever conflicts took place. Especially at this time is the more fitting for us to read the words of Benjamin Franklin when confronted with the uncertain issues of that period. Addressing George Washington, he said, quote, How has it happened, sir, that we have not hitherto thought of applying to the Father of Light to illuminate our understanding? All of us who are engaged in the struggle of this American Revolution must have observed frequent instances of a supernatural providence in our favor. I have lived, sir, a long time, and the longer I live, the more convincing proof I see of this truth that God governs the affairs of man." Today, the need of guidance is certainly no less imperative if we are to maintain the great principles they sought to formulate and fought to save. Two of the 39 signers were from Connecticut, while the third, Oliver Ellsworth, was called home but gave his stamp of approval to the proceedings. William Samuel Johnson, Connecticut delegate who signed, was 60 years of age, a Yale graduate and member of Congress, agent of Connecticut in New England, or excuse me, in England, Justice of the Connecticut Supreme Court, member of the Continental Congress, United States Senator, and President of Columbia College. The other member, Roger Sherman, was 66, lawyer and merchant, signer of the Declaration of Independence, Chief Justice of Connecticut, Mayor of New Haven, United States Senator, and a close advisor to Washington. We should rally to the support and defense of the Constitution, holding before all the world the advice of Washington to resist with care the spirit of innovation upon its principles, however precious the pretext. One method of assault may be to effect in the form, forms of the Constitution alterations, altercations rather, which will impair the energy of the system and thus undermine what cannot be directly overthrown." Unquote. These latter days are giving testimony to the farsightedness of the father of the country. Walter Clark Teagle was an executive who lived from May 1st, 1878 to January 9th, 1962. Now, um, he, was a, he was president of the Standard Oil Company of New Jersey from 1917 to 1937. Also, he was the chairman of the board from 1937 uh, to 1942. Um, according to a biography I found of him, he was responsible for leading Standard Oil to the forefront of the oil industry and significantly expanding the company's presence in the petrochemical field. Um, in 1923, uh, Cornell University announced that Tico was their highest paid or salaried graduate. Um, he also served as vice president of the Cornell Club of New York, and also uh, he was a member of various committees and so on and so forth. I, I found a, a story um, in which he is mentioned, uh, dated from um, September 16, 1921, and it was about an important statement that he had made. Now, we have had oh, for generations many executives uh, like Mr. Uh, Teagle uh, here in Greenwich, Connecticut, who have uh, played a role on the uh, national and international business scene. Um, and Mr. Teagle, of course, was no exception. Um, 
and uh, he was a, a Greenwich resident. He was living on uh, Byram Shore uh, at the um, at the time, and so uh, this statement was uh, published uh, about uh, something that he had said that people paid very close attention to. And so I'd like to uh, to share this uh, w- with you. That American companies expect immediately to resume the importation of oil from Mexico, practically suspended from June 30th, and that would be in the year 1921, by the way. Um, And uh, pending the revision of the Mexican tax on oil was a statement made by Walter C. Teagle of Byram Shore, who returned last Friday afternoon from Mexico City. Mr. Teagle was one of a committee of five men representing interests sent to Mexico to study conditions and to confer with the Obregón government in regard to the new tariff. The other members were Judge uh, Betty of, um, of, the, of, of the Texas Company, El Doheny of the Mexican Petroleum Company, H.F. Sinclair, chairman of the board of the Sinclair Oil Company, and J.W. Van Dyke, president of the Atlantic Refining Company. Mr. Teagle, who is now occupying the E.L. Marston residence on Byram Shore, which he purchased several months ago, uh, issued the following statement from his home here following his return from Mexico. Quote, our sojourn of one week in Mexico City was very pleasant. President Obregón and Secretary of Hacienda de la Huerta received us cordially and throughout the negotiations were most courteous. Every disposition to arrive at an amicable settlement was manifested by the Mexican officials, and we feel that the adjustment made uh, represented concessions on both sides and was all that could be expected in the circumstances. The companies which we represent expect to resume immediately their exportation from Mexico, and it is hoped that they may be able to continue the development of the oil industry in Mexico to the advantage of all concerned. The companies themselves, the people and the government of Mexico, save uh, see no reason to doubt that, that the personal con- uh, personnel contract now established mix- with Mexico will result in better understanding and mutual benefit. The tax which the Mexican government put on the export of oil defeated its own purpose by its size, according to authorities in this country. It represented an increase, they said, of more than 100% in some cases and brought the product of the Mexican oil fields out of line with the value of oil produced elsewhere. The British companies in the Tempico district have been striving to operate in spite of the tax, uh, or tax rather. And so that is from a man associated with uh, both business leadership and with the Greatest States era. And that man, of course, was Walter Clark Teagle. Well, <laughs> what do I, how do I approach this? Well, I'm just going to just blurt it out for you anyway. Do you know that prize fighting used to exist in Greenwich? Boy, this, if you think that you're surprised. I certainly was too. This is a story that dates from 1893 in September of that year. Um, and, you know, we think of the greatest stage with, uh, you know, millionaires and, um, and all that. Well, we had price fighting um, around the same time, too. Let me just get to this. This was originally published um, as a story in the Porchester Journal, Porchester, New York, uh, of course. Um, and, um, and it goes as follows. The journal chronicles a recent fight here. 
<laughs> the fight which was to take place between Stamford and Greenwich Pug Pugilists did not come off on account of the Stamford man failing to put in an appearance. That means he didn't show up. A barn had been procured some distance outside of Greenwich and a ring had been pitched. A number of sports had assembled and waited in vain for the fighters to appear. Finally, they wanted their money back and went to the doorkeeper who had charged them a dollar admission, but that individual had disappeared. Oh my. Again, this is in 1893. Um, it now appears as though the whole thing was concocted as a swindle by a couple of sports um, for the purpose of making a few dollars, and there was to be no fight at all. Very few Stanford sports went down, and that came from the Stanford Advocate. Now we have this part from the Porchester Journal. Our friends up the road are excellent authorities, usually, but while the Stanford man pictured by our contemporary did not show up, there were two toughs ready to take their places, and the glove contest, quote-unquote, came off according to program, and as the result showed, the fight was not between Stanford and Greenwich, but Greenwich Borough against East Portchester. There was, it was no secret, I should say, whether that the fellow named Patsy Keefe of Greenwich and young Ezra Clark of East Portchester in the parlance of the ring had, quote-unquote, been training for a four-round contest, Keefe having undertaken uh, to knock Clark out in four rounds. The gang and their followers met at the Grigg Dance House and Scraping Place on the post road between Greenwich and East Portchester within the shadow of Byram Chapel on Friday evening. There were eight rounds fought, and all of which Clark had uh, the, the best of the fight, slugging his opponent around the ring in lively shape. The fight was clearly one-sided, but on a claim of foul, it was given to O'Keefe, or excuse me, to Keefe. Clark suffered little or no punishment and was at work on Saturday as though nothing had interfered to or with his wind. Keefe was unable to be around owing to the punishment he received. We understand that there was a Greenwich officer uh, present during the disgraceful proceedings. A little investigation would not be lost here. We say, for the benefit of the authorities of Greenwich, that there are two men now in training um, in the town, one at the East Portchester end and the other at the Greenwich end for a final fight. Oh, dear. There is no secret about it. Every boy in town knows the principles. Is this disgraceful affair to be permitted again? Asked the Portchester Journal. Well... I will tell you that there was an editorial that appeared in the Greenwich Graphic. Erwin um, Edwards, being the proprietor, you've heard of him, featured in Greenwich Life as it is and was, the columns that I occasionally read to you on this podcast. This is a um, uh, an editorial, rather brief one, that appeared on Saturday, uh, September 9th, 1893. It's very brief, and um, you'll see why. Prize fighting in Greenwich should be stopped, <laughs> and our officers should see to it that no more of this sort of thing occurs, either at Grigg Hall or any uh, anywhere else within the limits of the town. Greenwich has been remarkably free of that class of people who are of no benefit to any community. <laughs> 
Let us keep it so. The reputation of Greenwich is too valuable to have it marred by such proceedings. And that was said about prize fighting. And to the best of my knowledge, I've been looking around on this. Um, it, um, if it was repeated, um, it was probably done very much behind closed doors. But apparently, prize fighting came and went as quickly as the story that I just read to you. Well, thank you, my friends, for tuning in to the Tuesday, 19th of September, 2023 episode of the Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast. This weekly podcast, hosted by me, I'm Jeffrey Bingham Mead, a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of Greenwich, Connecticut. It's my pleasure to have you every week, and I'm so glad that you could be with us uh, today. Greenwich, Connecticut stands as one of America's most notable and attractive communities. It's a special place that we call home, and I hope that you do, too. The Greenwich and Town for All Season Show podcast is made possible by Alexander Affiliates, Kevin M.J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Wet Matthews Wealth Management, Eastern Neurologic Services of New York, and listeners like you everywhere. You know what? You can contact me. You know it's true. You can do that by email at Greenwich at Town for All Seasons at gmail.com. Learn more about the show, listen to past shows by going to Greenwich at Town for All Seasons. Well, our next show is scheduled for Tuesday, the 26th of September, 2023. That's the final show of the month of September, and I'll be looking forward to hosting you yet again for a wonderful excursion into the history and culture of Greenwich, Connecticut. I thank you, as always, for celebrating your interest and your enthusiasm for Greenwich, Connecticut's history, and we will be back with you next week. Take care. Bye-bye now. (laughs) 